begins. Uh, we gave a little bit of background uh, about the city of Corinth last time, so we're not going to take a lot of time <clears throat> to deal with the city. But in case you weren't here, it's a very large city, a little over 700,000 people. About two-thirds of those at the time that Paul was writing this were slaves, and there was a lot of um, uh, idolatry, uh, temples and shrines built to a lot of different gods. It was a, uh, a city of industry. They had a port and uh, a city of trade, so they had nations coming in from all over and bringing their influence of uh, religion. And so it was a very wicked, wicked city, very ungodly city. <clears throat> a lot of immorality going on uh, in the city. And Paul uh, writes at least three letters that we know of. We have two of them in our Bible. Um, but uh, in 1 Corinthians, we saw that he had previously written them a letter. We don't have that letter uh, to look at. But apparently it was a letter uh, also addressing some things uh, that were problems in the church at Corinth. And uh, in the first book, there was uh, major issues with uh, division in the church and immorality in the church, uh, even to the point of um, uh, a son marrying his mom after his dad passed away and that kind of a thing. Uh, and the church uh, was not doing anything about it. And so Paul addresses this. He, he kind of gets on to them about these things and pins their toes to the floor and says, this ought not be so. You need to deal with this. You need to, uh, if these folks are not willing to uh, repent of these things and get them right, then you need to, uh, to send them out. They should not be part of the church. And um, we talked a little bit about some things there. Uh, and I took a couple of intentional rabbit trails, if you remember, uh, two Sundays ago, uh, dealing with a couple of very specific issues um, that I think Paul quite, quite readily addressed in 1 Corinthians. Between the time of uh, the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, uh, Titus goes to uh, Corinth and he takes uh, the, the first letter and delivers it to them. And while he's there, he gets a report of what's going on. And um, during the, the, the passage of time between uh, the First Corinthians and the Second Corinthians, uh, we have about a year worth of time. And it's during this time that uh, a large portion of the church did get things right, according to what Paul had written in his first letter. And so the majority of the church at this point are uh, repentant. They're trying to get back to being right, but there is still a strong, uh, stiff-necked people, a minority group that's in the, a faction that's in the church. And Titus brings this, this uh, back to Paul uh, by way of a report. Paul, during this time, travels from Ephesus into Macedonia, later on uh, over into like Philippi, Troas, that area, <coughs> and uh, gets this uh, report from Titus. And when he gets this report, uh, the biggest issue at this point is that they are tolerating false teachers that are coming into the, the church at Corinth, and they're, they're uh, getting people riled up against the Apostle Paul. They're, they're denying his apostleship. They're denying his biblical authority, uh, the fact that he has any right. Uh, they, they make accusations of him about his pride, the fact that um, he, he, they, they claim that he was dishonest among them that he was an unqualified, uh, that they didn't believe he had uh, apostolic qualifications, um, and that therefore he was not an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these false teachers were, were 
showing this to the church at Corinth and stirring up the, the minority and making them a very loud, very vocal voice in the church. And so Timothy uh, brings this report to, uh, to Paul from Titus, uh, from having visited over there. And when he learned about uh, this opposition, Paul writes this letter. And this letter is primarily uh, instructing the church that they need to discipline the uh, rebellion of the, the few that are there, the minority group that refuse to repent of these things, that they need to bring discipline to them. Uh, he also defends uh, his authority, his ministry. He does this by addressing three different things. Uh, he addresses his conduct before them. And uh, when we talk oftentimes, and there are times often I preach on the importance of our testimony, it is because our testimony oftentimes reflects on the message that we're bringing. And Paul wanted to make sure that when he preached the gospel that there was nothing that would cause people to have question about the message or a hindrance towards it. And so he defends his conduct among them. He, he points out some things. Paul uh, was a very meek fellow and uh, had a lot of sense of humility about him. And uh, he addresses this with the church at Corinth. He, he made sure that they did not mistake his meekness for a, a lack of authority on the subject. And they kind of forced his hand. And, and Paul, if you read his writings, you know this about him. He doesn't like to talk about uh, his qualifications or the things that he's been through. But there are times that necessity... Uh, of the situation requires it. And he has to do that in Second Corinthians. He has to deal with um, some of the things that uh, he's been through, his conduct, his testimony, his steadfastness, uh, his knowledge, uh, some of the things that he, he knows as far as his apostleship. He has to bring up to the people. And to, he does this by way of defending the ministry and the work that he's done with the church at Corinth. So he defends his apostleship uh, by addressing the conduct that he's had before them, uh, the fact of his character, uh, and then about the call that he had from God on his life and that God had a distinct purpose for him, that he was called to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, de he defends those three areas. Uh, the book is uh, 13 chapters long. It is easily divided into three sections. And Paul addresses three different things uh, in each of those sections. The first one is uh, an, ex an explanation of his ministry. This is chapters 1 through 7. Chapter 1 through 7, he takes the opportunity to explain his ministry. Uh, he starts off the, the letter by giving thanks to God for his faithfulness to him, uh, his comfort to him, his, uh, his watch care over him through all of the afflictions and the perils that he had been through. He starts the book off by giving God some thanks for this and uh, pointing out that God had uh, brought him through some of these things. He was afraid, I believe at this point, that well, not afraid, but he was concerned that perhaps the church would look at uh, all of these things that had fallen out on him as a hindrance to it being God's will. Kind of like what we were talking about, Brother Tom, today. Very good illustration of that. That when you see so many things going wrong and you're trying to do what's right, it's easy for somebody on the outside to say they're not doing what God wants them to do. Uh, and we were talking about that downstairs. And we were like, that's not for men to judge. That's for God to judge. And uh, that's something that uh, is between that person and the Lord. And they're the only ones that can know that. So I, I believe Paul deals with this thing of giving thanks to God for his uh, comfort, for his bringing him through all the perils as a defense of saying, even though all these things have happened to me, that's not an indication that I'm doing wrong. And uh, I believe he does this at the very beginning of the book to try to establish this. 
he also uh, explains <clears throat> that he has not come to them uh, between the two writings of these books um, because he's wanting to give them time to repent and to come back. So even though his heart was to visit them, um, he was trying to give them some time between the writings of the first book and the second book to make the changes that they needed to make and to, to return back to the Lord. Um, and then uh, let's look in chapter number 2, and uh, look, so let's look in verse number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to start in uh, verse number 5. We're going to read down through verse number 13. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. In these verses, Paul is dealing with a fellow who had been uh, on, the, on the rebellious side of things and had repented of those things. He had, he had uh, forsaken uh, some of the things he had been in. And Paul tells him this in verses uh, 5 and following. He says, look, if, if, if they've repented of this and you've given them that forgiveness, you need to restore them back to fellowship. And I, this is one of those things, and I wanted to take a few minutes to just, just hit this one subject. I'm not going to deal with it extensively here. But in our churches today, oftentimes we are very focused on church discipline when it comes to um, making sure that people that are in sin and continuing in sin and not being uh, open, they're being blatant and open about it and rebellious about it, they don't want to change, they don't want to draw closer to the Lord uh, in those matters and forsake their sin, that there is a point where the church is supposed to turn them out, that we're not to have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The Bible talks about this. And sad to say, in the day that we live, it seems like churches preach hard on this and they teach on this and they, they practice this, and we, we very little seem to deal with the issue of what if they do repent? Do we forgive them? Do we bring them back in fellowship? Do we restore them back into the church? And Paul addresses this here. And I think it's worthy to take a moment to note this, uh, that when a person is forgiven, when they are, uh, uh, they, they've, they've gotten uh, that taken care of, they're denying of, of the truth of God's Word taken care of in their life, that uh, we as brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to bring them back into fellowship. And we're to, we're to do the same thing for them, uh, that we would expect somebody to do for us if we were in the same situation. And that is to edify us and to help us along and to encourage us. Uh, and, and I just think it's important for us to understand that even though there are times where a church has to say, this person is, is creating this division, this stir in the church, and they're unrepentant of this, this sin that is just open and blatant and defiant to God, uh, there are times that that has to happen. Just as much as that has to happen, there also has to be that time of forgiveness when they do come back to say, uh, we're glad to see that. I'm glad God's working in your heart. 
and come back into our fellowship and let's, let's serve the Lord together again. And uh, it's important for us to note these things. Uh, and, uh, and just after this, as he gets the rest of this section pretty much from this point in verse number 14 or so through about the middle of chapter 6, Paul deals with four areas of his ministry. He talks about the message that he has. It's not man's message, but it's God's message. He talks about the circumstances that God has brought into his life and brought him through. He talks about his motives. Uh, a lot of the people that were being stirred up by these false teachers were questioning Paul's motives. So he deals with the purity of his motives, and then he deals with the issue of his conduct. And this takes place over the next four chapters. Uh, and you can take time to read through those. A tremendous uh, defense. And Paul is... Paul is a master, it seems like, and I know he writes things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but God uses uh, his, his abilities as well in the writing of this. And Paul is a, a thinker, and he is, uh, in all of his letters, is a master of uh, laying out the evidence for his point and making what would be considered an airtight case and then drawing the conclusion. And by the time he's drawn the conclusion, you can't really debate the, the conclusion he came to because it's rock solid. And so Paul does this. Over the next four chapters, he lays the groundwork for his authority and why he has uh, the apostleship that God has given to him for the Gentiles and to be able to write these things to the church authoritatively. And uh, he does that over the next four chapters. He then charges them to separate themselves from any leftover defilement that's in the church. Again, keep in mind... The majority of the church at Corinth at this point are not living in defilement. But there is that minority group that is still there. They're still in, in the church and uh, trying to cause trouble. And so Paul once again charges them, that group that's uh, still rebellious, to uh, come to this place. And then uh, he does talk about uh, the fact that uh, he's, uh, he is uh, encouraged, I guess would be the word, uh, he's rejoicing over the report that Titus gave that many of them did uh, change from his first letter and that there was a good change of heart there, and he rejoiced in that. So that's all taking place in this first section of the book from chapter 1 through chapter 7. The second section is uh, chapters 8 and 9, and he kind of switches gears, and he spends two chapters dealing with uh, the collection for the saints. And now understand in the first century church, uh, and that, that area, especially around Jerusalem, uh, there was a lot of persecution going on. And when I say persecution, not just physical persecution, but families who would literally kick family members out of their homes and disown them and not speak with them. Employers that would fire their employees and not hire them again because they named the name of Christ and they trusted Christ as their Savior. And a lot of this is going on. And so there's a hardship. There's a lot of people that are hurting. They can't make a living. They can't function well. And so those that were with means were able to and still had uh, the abilities uh, to make money would oftentimes give to the poor and the needy. They would deal with widows, uh, the fatherless, and the poor. And they would contribute. In fact, the Bible tells us at one point in the book of Acts they had all things in common. They just all brought it together and said, divide it up so we can all get along fine and, and make it through life. Uh, I don't think that's God intent, God's intent for all of history, but it was for that period of time and uh, showed the love of one another. And I do believe that in, in church uh, there is still that desire and that, that encouragement from the Lord that we take care of one another. 
Uh, if a brother or sister in Christ is struggling, uh, having difficulty, those, are, those that are able to, I think, ought to try to help in those areas. And, uh, and our church has, has been great at that. I, I don't have to preach to you all on that. I think uh, uh, th- that this church does fine in this. But I will say this. Second uh, Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is the, the most comprehensive and the longest teaching of New Testament giving in all of Scripture. It is, it is the most exhaustive. It deals with all kinds of principles uh, on giving. Uh, he he uh, gives them the examples, if you'll remember, of the Macedonians uh, giving out of their need. Even though they were in want themselves, they oftentimes would sacrificially give, and specifically the church at Philippi. Philippi was a tremendous... Uh, they were a church that was known for their giving, uh, even in the time where they themselves had needs. And so he appeals to the church at Corinth to do the same thing. Now, the church at Corinth, apparently, from what we understand, uh, had already made commitment to, to give some funds to uh, those that were in Jerusalem, those that were having a difficult time there. And Paul does, in, in the latter part of this letter, commend the messengers that he's sending to them uh, that are there to collect for the, uh, the saints in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so he does deal with that. And so the church at Corinth had had a good heart, I think, they, in this aspect. They seem to have committed uh, already an amount to, to go uh, to Jerusalem. And, uh, but Paul gives some very great principles uh, in chapter, uh, chapters 8 and 9. If you ever need uh, to just read about what, what the New Testament uh, principles of giving are, Second uh, Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are very good chapters to use on this. There's four main areas he deals with. Uh, in uh, chapter 8, he deals with the principles of giving and the purpose of giving. At the end of chapter 8 and into chapter number 9, he deals with policies that we're to follow in giving, uh, how we're to go about it. And then he talks about, at the very end of it, the promises that are tied to uh, giving. And so, uh, a tremendous uh, set of uh, Scripture uh, on the issue of New Testament uh, giving. And so I would encourage you, if you ever uh, want to do a study on that or know a little bit firsthand, that would be a tremendous place to start and uh, to kind of launch from. It is, is going to be the most uh, comprehensive section of Scripture that's all together uh, dealing on the issue of giving. Uh, when he gets done with chapters 8 and 9, um, there is a, a complete and utter change uh, that takes place uh, from chapters uh, 10 through chapter 13, the tone of the whole letter changes. Uh, some people uh, some people that read this and um, are trying to say, well, they, they try to say, well, Paul didn't write the whole book. He only wrote uh, chapters 1 through 9, and it seems like somebody else maybe wrote uh, chapters uh, 10 through 13. And the reason is because there's a, a, a distinct, uh, it seems like Paul is, there are still some things he addresses in the early part of the book, but for the most part he's giving thanks for the fact that they have had a change of heart. He talks about their giving and the fact that they've already committed uh, an amount and that he's sending some folks to collect those uh, commitments. To all of a sudden, in chapters 10 through chapter 13, he, he almost goes back to a very much 1 Corinthians-type tone where he's very corrective. And the reason is... and, and a lot of people say, well, that means probably two different writers. I don't think that's the case. I do believe he had two purposes in writing this letter. One was to commend and to encourage those that were doing right. The second was to address and deal with the remnant of the rebellious folks that were still 
being hard-hearted and not changing. So I don't see any conflict here with Paul being the author of the entirety of the Second Corinthians. Um, some people may, and that's fine. We'll know when we get to heaven. We can ask them. Uh, and that, so it's not one of those issues that we need to split hairs over. And especially me, I don't have any to spare, so I don't want to split any of my hairs. Uh, but I do believe that Paul wrote the entirety of the book personally, and that's my uh, personal opinion of it and belief of it, and that he's just addressing two different factions in the church. But from this point on, he changes from encouraging those uh, that had been repentant, that had uh, done right according to his first letter, and he now begins to charge and to, and to reprove uh, those that are rebellious. He does this from chapter 10 through chapter 13. In order to do this, and again, keep in mind, the purpose of this writing primarily was because they were allowing false teachers to uh, influence the people's opinion of Paul. Whether Paul was right in his ministry, whether he had even the authority of God to even address these things. And so he begins in chapter 10 by establishing his authority. And again, dealing with this idea that they're not to mistake um, his meekness. Uh, as as a diminished authority or that he doesn't have authority. Um, and the, one of the ways that he does this is he begins to list his credentials and some of the things that God has used to give him authority in ministry. And even though he doesn't like to mention these, he, he, he's not a proud person. Uh, they've kind of forced his hand at this to give qualifications. And so he deals with several things here in chapters 10 and 11. He deals with, first of all, uh, the extent of his knowledge. Uh, he was very well educated. Um, he was educated in uh, at the feet of Gamaliel as far as worldly education. But there's an interesting thing that we find about the Apostle Paul. When Paul talks about the message that he preaches, he makes the statement, not, not in this book, but in one of his other writings, he makes the statement that the gospel was not given to him by other apostles even but that the thing that he was preaching was given to him of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only time I know that God himself could have taught the Apostle Paul directly would have been the time period when uh, Paul first got saved. If you'll remember, he went to spend uh, all of his time with the apostles, and he was there for a period of time, and he was so zealous, and it was creating such a stir that the apostles said, go home, uh, you're, you're creating too much drama, so to speak, and... And they sent him home to Tarsus. And it's uh, about two years before Barnabas comes along and says, I think Paul's the man to go on this, this missionary journey with us. And uh, goes and gets him. And I believe that the time that uh, that, that took place is the time period, perhaps, that, that the Lord taught the Apostle Paul directly. Uh, now, how he did that, I don't know. We don't have a record of that, whether it was through reading of old scriptures that were already in, in available to him, maybe hearing preaching of other apostles, but he makes it sound like that he didn't receive this of apostles, but from the Lord himself. And so it could very well be. We do know that Paul had at least one or two uh, times where God uh, appeared to him directly. First of all, on the road to Damascus. And then when he was caught, he talks about a man who was caught up in the third heaven. We believe it to be himself, of course. And uh, so we do know that there were times God did appear to him directly. And I would not rule out the fact that he learned at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself uh, because of that statement that He makes. And so He talks about His knowledge and uh, where this uh, knowledge came from and, and the amount of knowledge that He had. He deals then with the, the issue of His integrity. 
and then he deals with uh, some of the things that he has accomplished for the Lord in ministry. Uh, he also deals with the sufferings that he has endured and yet been able to be steadfast through them. Uh, he deals them with visions and he deals with miracles. He does all of this to uh, establish again a foundation for his authority to address this this rebellious faction, this, this remnant of those that were still defiant in the church, and to refute uh, the testimony of these false teachers that had come in and tried to convince the church that Paul, Paul was just another man and, and you don't have to listen to him. Uh, and then finally, at the end of this, he, he does reveal uh, his plans to come now, finally, and visit with them and to come see them. And uh, again, he's trying to encourage that group, uh, get these things right before I come. Uh, Paul, Paul does not want to come and have to address and reprove things very strongly and, and um, with, a, with a severity that uh, would, would cause people to have a, a lot of friction. He would rather them get it right before he gets there so that when he comes... There is a spirit of fellowship there. And so he, he charges them in these things uh, in these last uh, three chapters or so, four chapters. Um, he deals with all of these things and makes a plea to those that are uh, still rebellious towards those things to get them right so that when I come, uh, we won't have to deal with these matters. And uh, by the way, it's always better to do it that way, isn't it? Uh, I look at how, how the Lord deals with me personally. And there are some things I look back on in my life and I think, Lord, why did you have to put me through that? And oftentimes I wonder if it's because He knew that was the only way I would take notice and, and learn the lesson that He had for me. I mean, He knows my heart better than I do. I'd like to think I could learn it without that. But the truth is, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, He knows. I wouldn't know. And so sometimes I just have to trust Him that when He puts me through things like that, that do bring me out more purified on the other side or shining like gold on the other side or, or knowing more or understanding more of His Word, uh, that there was a purpose in that. That, that uh, I would rather <laughs> God be able to trust me to learn it just by showing it to me because that's a whole lot easier. And it's not nearly as painful. And I, I think of that often when I think of what Paul did here at the end of this, at this book. That he's telling the folks, look, it'd be much easier if you just listen to what I say. Don't wait for me to get there and have to deal with it. And I think sometimes in our lives, that's the way we need to understand it with the Lord. It'd just do us well to take God at His Word and just, just do it. But so many times, through our stubbornness, through our apathy perhaps, Maybe through our ignorance, uh, God has to get our attention sometimes. And I don't like that. I'm thankful for it because I know it's needful, but I don't like it. And I don't know very many of us that do. Uh, but there are times that God does have to do that. And Paul kind of is using that same mindset with these folks. Listen, here's what's right. Get it right before I come. I'm coming. I, I want to come and I want to fellowship with you. I want to rejoice in you. And, and I really don't want to have to come and, and deal with this. So he charges them with that and uh, kind of ends the book. Then he gives a, an ending salutation uh, there at the end. Uh, of course, we do believe that Paul was the, the author. As I said before, uh, there is some uh, difference of opinion in the 
the people that study these things, that some people think that Paul might have only written the first part and not probably the last part. I don't personally believe that. I do believe that he wrote all of it just to two different people because Paul was very thorough with his letters. Uh, he, he, he would not have addressed one group without addressing the other group in the church. And uh, so I just tend to believe that Paul wrote all of it. Um, there, there's quite a bit of external evidences uh, throughout historical writings that uh, uh, even secular historians of that time period oftentimes would speak of the church at Corinth, and they would talk about Paul's writing uh, in both the first and the second Corinthian letters uh, that we have. They refer to them even in their secular writings. So it seems like uh, even externally from Scripture, there is evidence that Paul is the author of this and, and was the human instrument God used uh, to pen these words. The time of the apostles is an interesting time. Um, Paul was in Ephesus at the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians, and he was expecting Timothy to come uh, fairly shortly uh, and to uh, return to him uh, and give him a report of the things at, at Corinth. Um, the, uh, as, as we mentioned before, uh, there was a lot of persecution that was taking place during this time. Um, and um, this, this letter was probably written, the last, the last letter we dealt with, um, 1 Corinthians, was around uh, 55 A.D., uh, as best we can tell. And it seems to be that this letter came about one year after that. Uh, so about a year's worth of time has, has transpired. Uh, Timothy has, ti- has traveled to Corinth and back and given a report to Paul. Titus has taken a letter to uh, Corinth and has stayed there and given Timothy a report to bring back to Paul. And then Paul has now written this letter in response to those things with the anticipation that he was soon going to go and visit them. Uh, he points to Christ. I want to look at the, how he portrays Christ in First Corinthians. Keep your Bible handy. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture here in about... Oh, eight minutes or so. All right. We're going to start in chapter 1 and verse number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 5. And there are a number of ways that God, uh, or that, that the Apostle Paul uh, presents the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as to the role that he plays uh, in a believer's life, uh, the, the things that he accomplishes in our lives. And uh, let's look at verse number 5. The Bible says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so, also, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And so uh, he pictures Christ here as our consolation. He's the one that brings uh, comfort to us in times of trial. And so he refers to Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically, as having a ministry to the believer in the area of consolation. Uh, then chapter number 2. Look over at chapter number 2. And let's look in verse number 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Christ is the one that causes us to triumph. He is the one that fights the battles for us and gives us the victory. And so here he is uh, pictured as the believer's triumph. Uh, the believer's triumph. Not only is he a comfort to us, but he's the one that gives us victory in uh, in the Christian life. And then chapter four and verse number five. Chapter four and verse number five. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. 
and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. The Lord Jesus Christ is to be Lord of our lives. Years ago when I was a teenager, there was a lot of discussion about lordship salvation. And uh, I do believe that Christ ought to be Lord of our life if we're a Christian. I don't believe that you have to make Him Lord of your life before you get saved. Uh, that tends to bring you to a place of work salvation. Um, and we're going to be dealing with that topic, Lord willing, or a topic similar to that. We're going to deal with repentance, and it's going to bring in this idea of lordship uh, as well uh, here in the next couple of weeks, uh, probably about two weeks or so on Wednesday night, and uh, be praying for that study. I've been putting a lot of material together for that and I'm looking forward to it. But uh, uh, just because Christ is Lord, uh, or the fact that Christ is to be our Lord, does not mean that he, it's required for salvation. It does mean that He should be, now that we are saved, our Lord. He ought to be the one that is our Master. He's the one that has every right to tell us what we can do and what we cannot do, doesn't He? I mean, He did create us. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good reason uh, He made us. Uh, he also bought us again with a price. Uh, he owns us. Uh, we belong to Him. And uh, yes, He has every right to be our Master, to be our Lord. And we ought to picture Him as such. Our hearts ought to be in such a place that we give Him absolute authority in our life in every aspect. He is our Lord. And if the Bible tells us that, whether we believe it or not, whether we agree with it or not, it still ought to settle it. Because He is our Lord. Alright, let's look at verse number 6, same chapter. Chapter 4, verse number 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness that shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord is our light. He brings light to our darkness. The darkness of sin that we were in, our uh, darkness of ignorance of things of the Lord that we were in before we got saved, He brings light to those things. And aren't we glad of that? Uh, I was talking to somebody just the other day. And I've, I've studied Scripture for years, and I, and I love to study. I love to read it. Uh, but the, the further we get into studying and learning about Scripture, the more we realize we don't know about it. And I remember coming out of Bible college thinking, boy, I'm ready to go. I know all this stuff about the Bible. And now I stand here 20-some, 30 years later, however long it's been, and I think, Lord, I didn't know anything about the Bible. And now, if anything, I look at it and say, I know less than there is to know about it. And uh, the truth is, God is the one that brings that light to us. And He does it the entire journey this side of heaven. Thy word, the Bible says in Psalm 119, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Bible tells us that in Him is light. Uh, that God is light, I'm sorry, and in Him is no darkness at all. And if we have uh, a lack of understanding, if we have lack of knowledge, if we have lack of right motives, we have only to look to the Lord to get those things, to get understanding, to get wisdom. And, uh, of course, Solomon wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And these are the things that God uh, brings to us. So Paul, Paul deals with that here. And he says that Christ is the light of every believer. Look in chapter 5 and verse number 10. 
Chapter 5 and verse number 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And so he pictures Christ as our judge. And by the way, it would do us well to live with this in mind. A lot of the reasons that we don't live the way we ought and we don't have the testimony we ought is we don't live daily consciously with the mindset that every single one of us one day will stand. And we all will give an account of the things that we have done in our bodies ever since we have been saved, ever since we've been saved. Now, we're not going to, I praise the Lord, I don't have to give an account uh, for my sin. It's under the blood. But the things that I've done in my life, I will be judged on. And even those sinful things can cause me to lose reward. God is the one that judges those things, whether they've been good or whether they've been bad. This is not a judgment for salvation. But this is a judgment for reward. And uh, the Bible teaches that He is our judge. Chapter 5 and verse number 19. <clears throat> he says, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So Christ, the Bible says in the first part of verse number 19, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world Unto himself. He is our reconciliation. He is our reconciliation. Our sin caused us to have a great debt of justice that had to be paid. It was so great, in fact, that none of us had the ability to pay it. And Jesus Christ came and he balanced the books, he reconciled it. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, remember balancing your checkbooks. Now, with all this electronic and digital stuff, most people don't do that anymore. They just check their balance on their phone. But it was a day where you kept track of everything you spent, everything that came in, and it wanted... And I'll never forget, years ago as a kid, my mom would do this for our church, uh, and we would have all these checks to put in order, and she'd mark them all off. And if she was even a penny off, she'd spend days trying to find that one penny because the books had to balance. And I'll tell you this, there was a work that the Lord Jesus Christ did that none of us could do. And that was He was able to bring into reconciliation the justice of God and the sinfulness of man. And He was able to make that payment, that debt for that sin, to be paid in its fullness, in its entirety, and to give it to us as a free gift of eternal life. What an amazing thing. He is our reconciliation. Chapter 5, verse number 21. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He is our substitute. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And so uh, He pictures Christ as our substitute. In chapter 9 and verse number 15, <clears throat> chapter 9 and verse number 15, but thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. What was God's unspeakable gift? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the believer's gift. And He pictures the Lord Jesus Christ as such. Chapter 10 and verse number 7. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, let of himself uh, think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. Christ is our owner. He owns us. We belong to Him. He has bought us with a price, the Bible says. 
And um, so Paul pictures Christ as the one that owns us as believers. And then I want you to notice, lastly, he pictures Christ in chapter 12 and verse number 9. This is the account where Paul had asked the Lord three different times to remove the thorn of the flesh, the messenger of Satan. And he said, My grace, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power that Christ has, Paul said, I want that power to rest upon me. And he pictures Christ as the power of the believer. The power of the believer. He is our strength. Uh, very quickly, just to give you the theme, uh, Paul, the theme of the book, the overall gist of what the book is dealing with is Paul's defense of his ministry. <clears throat> there are two passages that are considered to be key to this book. Uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And I'm just going to give you these for sake of time, and you can read through them later. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. The key chapters are chapters 8 and 9. Again, just one of the most com com uh, complete uh, revelations that God gives us about New Testament giving. And uh, tremendous uh, section on uh, giving. If you've never read those two chapters with that in mind, that, that mindset of being taught how to give, uh, it's, it'd be a good study for you. Something to read through. would encourage you to do so. All right, let's stand together. We're a few moments late, so we'll probably start about 11.05 or so, maybe 11.07, somewhere around there. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word and how it guides and directs us. Lord, we're thankful that you used men like Paul 